0: Chapter 54 of the House by the Churchyard This is a Librivox recording. All Librivox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit Librivox.org. Recording by John Brandon. The House by the Churchyard by Joseph Sheraton LaFano. Chapter 54, in which Miss Magnolia McNamara and Dr. Toole in different scenes proved themselves good samaritans and the great dr pell mounts the stairs of the house by the churchyard so pulse or no pulse dead or alive they got Sturk into his bed poor cowed quiet little mrs Sturk went quite wild at the bedside oh my barney my barney my noble barney she kept crying he's gone he'll never speak again do you think he hears oh barney my darling barney it's your own poor little letty oh barney darling don't you hear it's your own poor foolish letty but it was the same stern face and ears of stone there was no answer and no sign and she sent a pitiful entreaty to dr toole who came very good-naturedly and indeed he was prowling about the doorway of his domicile in expectation of the summons and he shook her very cordially by the hand and quite filled up at her woebegone appeal and told her she must not despair yet and this time he pronounced most positively that Sturk was still living yes my dear madam so sure as you and i are there's no mistaking and as the warmth of the bed began to tell the signs of life showed themselves more and more unequivocally but knew that his patient was in a state of coma from which he had no hope of his emerging so poor little mrs Stirk, as white as a plaster on the wall who kept her imploring eyes fixed on the doctor's ruddy countenance during his moments of deliberation burst out into a flood of tears and thanksgivings and benedictions he'll recover something tells me he'll recover oh my barney darling you will you will while there's life you know my dear ma'am," said tool doing his best but then you see he's been very badly abused about the head and the brain you know is the great centre the the but as i said while there's life there's hope and he's so strong he shakes off an illness so easily he has such courage so much the better mom and i can't but think as he did not die outright and has shown such wonderful endurance oh my darling he'll get on well well mom there certainly have been wonderful recoveries and he's so much better already you see and i know so well how he gets through an illness Tis wonderful and he certainly is mightily improved since we got him to bed why i can see him breathe now and you know it must be a good sign and then there's a merciful god over us and all the poor little children what would become of us and then she wiped her eyes quickly the promise you know of length of days it often comforted me before to those that honor father and mother and i believe there never was so good a son o oh, my noble barney never tis my want of reliance and trust in the almighty's goodness and so holding tool by the cuff of his coat and looking piteously into his face as they stood together in the doorway the poor little woman argued thus with inexorable death fools and blind when amidst our agonies of supplication the blow descends Our faith in prayer is staggered, as if it reached not the ear of the all wise and moved not his sublime compassion. Are we quite sure that we comprehend the awful and far sighted game that is being played for us and others so well that we can sit by and safely dictate its moves? How will Messrs. Murphy or Staunton, on whose calculations I will suppose you have staked a hundred pounds, brook your insane solicitations? to spare this pawn or withdraw that night from prize. On the board which is but the toy type of that dread field where all the powers of eternal intellect, the wisdom from above and the wisdom from beneath, the stupendous intelligence that made, and the stupendous sagacity that would undo us, are pitted one against the other, in a death combat, which admits of no reconciliation and no compromise. About poor Mrs. Nutter's illness and the causes of it, various stories were current in chapel Is it? Some had heard it was a blackamoor witch who had evoked the foul fiend in bodily shape from the parlor cupboard, and that he had with his cloven foot kicked her and Sally Nutter round the apartment until their screams brought in Charles Nutter, who was smoking in the garden, and that on entering, he would have fared as badly as the rest had he not had the presence of mind to pounce at once upon the great family bible that lay on the window-sill with which he belaboured the infernal intruder to a purpose others reported twas the ghost of old philip nutter who rose through the floor and talked i know not what awful were domenteed. these were the confabulations of the tap-room and the kitchen But the speculations and rumors current over the card table and claret glasses were hardly more congruous or intelligible. In fact, nobody knew well what to make of it. Nutter certainly had disappeared, and there was an uneasy feeling about him. The sinister terms on which he and Sturk had stood were quite well known, and though nobody spoke out, everyone knew pretty well what his neighbor was thinking of. Our blooming friend the handsome and stalwart magnolia having got a confidential hint from agitated mrs mack trudged up to the mills in a fine frenzy vowing vengeance on mary matchwell for she liked poor sally nutter well and when with all her roses in her cheeks and her saucy black eyes flashing vain lightnings across the room in pursuit of the vanished woman in sable the amazon with black hair and slender waist comforted, and pitied poor Sally, and anathematized her cowardly foe. It must be confessed she looked plaguy-handsome, wicked, and good-natured. Mary Matchwell, indeed. I'll match her well. Wait a while. You'll see if I don't. I'll pay her off yet. Never mind, Sally, darling. Hurrah! Don't be crying, child do you hear me what's that charles why then is it about charles you're crying charles nutter woman dear don't you think he's come to an age to take care of himself i'll hold you a crown he's in dublin with the sheriff going to cart that jade to bridewell and why in the world didn't you send for me when you wanted to discourse with Mary Matchwell. Where was the good of my poor dear mother? Why she's as soft as butter. 'Twas a devil like me you wanted. You poor little darling. Do you think I'd let her frighten you this way, the vixen? I'd a knocked her through the window as soon as look at her. She saw with half an eye she could frighten you both, you poor things. Oh ho. Oh how i wish i was here i'd a put her across my knee and no do you say pooh you don't know me you poor innocent little creature and do you mind now you must not be moping here sally nutter all alone you'll just come down to us and drink a cup of tea and play a round game and hear the news and look up now and give me a kiss, for I like you, Sally, you kind old girl. And she gave her a hug and a shake and a half a dozen kisses on each cheek and laughed merrily and scolded and kissed her again. Little more than an hour after, up comes a little billet from the good-natured Magnolia just to help poor little Sally Nutter out of the vapors and vowing that no excuse should stand good and that comes she must to tea and cards. And, oh, what do you think? It went on. Such a bit of news. I'm going to tell you. So prepare for a chock. At this part, poor Sally felt quite sick, but went on. Dr. Sturk that drove into town yesterday as grand as you please, in Mrs. Strafford's coach, all smiles and politeness, who'd believed well he just come back with two great fractions of his skull riding on a bear insensible into town there's for you only think of poor mrs Stirk, and the chalk she's got on sight of him and how thankful and pleasant you should be that charles nutter is not a corpse's in the butcher's wood and jiggin home to you like Sturk did but well in health what i am certain sure he is taken the law of mary matchwell bless the mark to get her imprisoned and publicly wiped by the common hangman all which rhapsody conjured up a confused and dyspeptic dream full of absurd and terrific images which he could not well comprehend except in so far as it seemed clear that some signal disaster had befallen Sterk that night at nine o'clock the great dr pell arrived in his coach with steaming horses at sterk's hall door where the footman thundered a tattoo that might have roused the dead for it was the family's business if they did not want a noise to muffle the knocker and the doctor strode up directed by the whispering awestruck maid to sterk's bedchamber with his hands in his muff after the matter of doctors in his day without asking questions or hesitating on lobbies for the sands of his minutes ran out in gold dust so with a sort of awe and suppressed bustle preceding and following him he glided upstairs and straight to the patient's bedside serene saturnine and rapid in a twinkling the maid was running down the street for Toole, who had kept at home in state costume expecting the consultation with the great man which he liked And up came Toole, with his brows knit and his chin high, marching over the pavement in a mighty fuss, for he knew that the oracle's time and temper were not to be trifled with. In the club, Larry the Drawer, as he set a pint of mulled claret, by old Arthur Slow's elbow, whispered something in his ear with a solemn wink. Ho, by Jove, gentlemen, the doctor's come, Dr. Pell! his coach stands at sterk's door larry says and we'll soon hear how he fares and up got major o'neil with a hey ho ho and out he went followed by old slow with his little tankard in his fist to the inn door where the major looked on the carriage lighted up by the footman's flambeau beneath the old village elm up the street Smoking his pipe still to keep it burning and communicating with Slow two words at a time, and Slow stood gazing at the same object with his little faded blue eyes, his disengaged hand in his breeches pocket, and ever and anon wetting his lips with his hot cordial and assenting agreeably to the major's conclusions. C's ace, curse it, cried Clough, who. I'm happy to say, had taken no harm by his last night's wetting. Another gammon, I'll lay you fifty. Toole, I dare say, will look in and tell us how poor Sturt goes on, said Puddock, playing his throw. Hang it, Puddock, mind your game. To be sure, he will sink ace. Well, curse it. The same throw over again. 'Tis too bad. i mistaking your last time with that stupid blot you've covered and now by jove it ruins me there's no playing when fellows are getting up every minute to gape after doctors coaches and leaving the door open hang it i've lost the game by it gammon twice already Tis very pleasant i only wish when gentlemen interrupt play they'd be good enough to pay the bets it was not much about five shillings altogether and little Puddock had not often a run of luck. If you'd like to win it back, Captain Clough, I'll give you a chance, said O'Flaherty, who was tolerably sober. I'll lay you an even guinea, Sturk's dead before nine tomorrow morning, and two to one he's dead before this time tomorrow night. I thank you, no, sir. Two doctors over him, and his head in two pieces. You're very obliging, Lieutenant but i'll choose a likelier wager said clough dangerfield who was overlooking the party with his back to the fire appeared displeased at their levity shook his head and was on the point of speaking one of those polite but cynical reproofs whose irony cold and intangible intimidated the less potent spirits of the club-room but he dismissed it with a little shrug And a minute after, Major O'Neill and Arthur Slow became aware that Dangerfield had glided behind them, and was looking serenely like themselves at the Dublin doctor's carriage and smoking team. The light from Sturk's bedroom window, and the red glare of the footman's torch, made two little trembling reflections in the silver spectacles, as he stood in the shade peering movelessly over their shoulders. "'Tis a sorry business, gentlemen,' he said, in a stern, subdued tone. Seven children and a widow. "'He's not dead yet, though. "'Whatever Toole might do, the Dublin doctor would not stay with a dead man. "'Time's precious. "'I can't describe how I pity that poor soul, his wife. "'What's to become of her and her helpless brood, I know not.' "'Slow grunted a dismal assent, and—' The major, with a dolorous gaze, blew a thin stream of tobacco smoke into the night air, which floated off like the ghost of a sigh, towards the glimmering window of Sturk's bedroom. So they all grew silent. It seemed they had no more to say, and that in their minds the dark curtain had come down upon the drama of which the noble Barney, as poor Mrs. Sturk called him, was hero. End of chapter 54